Welcome to Mission Critical, sale leaseback podcast by Ascension, the world's number one sale leaseback show. We share the latest in sale leaseback advice from the best in the game to keep you at the cutting edge of the hottest emerging practices in corporate real estate. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. We talk to sale leaseback. This is Mission Critical, a podcast by Ascension. I'm your host, Tom Johnson, and thanks for joining us today. Today, I'm here with Colin Hart. Colin is the CEO and Managing Director of ERE Healthcare Real Estate Advisors, a highly specialized real estate firm that represents leading physician groups in structuring sale leaseback transactions on their clinical and surgical center real estate. Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. Awesome. So before we go into your founding of ERE in 2017, you have a pretty diverse background in real estate in general. I know you worked for a family office. You then jumped into the private REIT sector, really both on the principal buy side, working in single tenant. And I think as you got into the larger company, a single tenant, I think you did some single tenant industrial, single tenant retail, but then also your first foray into the medical industry, right? Right. And so after that, I know you landed an investment banking firm, but I'm really curious, how did all this background and experience give you the impetus or the insight or the motivation to start ERE with some of your partners? Sure. So I think the short of it is I'm really just not a corporate guy. And so working in a corporate environment, always on the buy side, as you highlighted, but you know, I started with a family office. It's a small shop, right? It's not a big organization, but I couldn't go anywhere outside of, you know, I was talking directly to the principal and investing on his behalf. And so it was a great experience because we were investing all of our own money. Then when I got to the institutional world and I worked for the private read, it's a totally different ballgame, right? We would terminate deals at the family office if the turn was wrong, right? Like if the access wasn't right, then you get into the institutional side and we have to place capital. So there was this need to find property. And even if I wouldn't have bought all of the properties, we had to place the money, right? So I think working in that corporate environment kind of gave me the reminder that I'm really an entrepreneurial guy and that's what I prefer. And that's why I love what we do, right? Because we're advisors, we get to work with you know a variety of healthcare specialists. And so it allows us to really show them what the opportunities are and open their minds to, you know, sale lease facts and kind of using that as a tool, you know, in their tool belt. Very good. So Tell me then about ERE and why you found this niche in the medical industry and why you really, and I I know from listening to you speak before, you thought this was a market that was underserved. So tell me about why you started and what you guys do. Sure. So at the family office, I got a little bit of medical experience. We bought like one or two medical buildings or surgery centers. When I worked at the private REIT, we were kind of diversified, right? So we bought industrial assets. So think warehouse or manufacturing. We bought retail, which I know you guys know very well with QSRs and, and that sort of thing. And then we bought medical. So we were about a third, a third, a third, and we were getting the best cap rates on the medical deals. And they're much less cookie cutter deals, right? They were usually sale leasebacks. There was always some kind of interesting dynamic with the seller, a lot of times because they're a healthcare organization or physician group. So there's always some ego there, right? It's not just always business folks. And so we were getting the best cap rates on those deals. And really, I think that was attributable to their just not being great advisors in the space. And certainly we have peers. And I know that you know you guys are highly focused on sale leasebacks, maybe not as much medical. 
And so what we decided to do is carve out a niche for ourselves, really to work for the doctors and help the doctors and represent their best interests to make sure that, you know, when they're dealing with institutional buyers, folks who are professional investors, that they have an opportunity to get a fair deal. So that's that was really the impetus behind it is just there was a gap in the market. So tell me about doctors. Is it my dentist down the street or is it something else? Like, give me some more insight. I think that means that's a loaded question, right? Totally. Love to work with your dentist if he owns a nice large building. So we'd prefer, and I think we have better outcomes on larger buildings, but that's not to say that we don't sell smaller assets as well. But I would tell you that most of our clients are surgical specialists. So that's going to be ophthalmologists, dermatologists, gastroenterologists, orthopods, We work with some nephrologists, even though they're not really necessarily surgical. We'll work with ENT practices. Notice you did not hear me say dentists in there. And and really the reason for that is just most of them don't own large buildings. Certainly there are some dental practices that are kind of like mega or regional practices, but we have not worked much in the dental space. And then we've also worked in veterinary. So I would say you know, typical profile of one of our clients is anywhere from let's say two to 50 physicians, usually in a surgical specialty. And then geography is really not critical. I mean, we've literally transacted from Florida to Alaska. So from that standpoint, you know, these deals really work everywhere and in in most medical specialties. So what's been the advantage, and I guess the challenges per se, of like drilling down even further, because I've been in brokerage a long time and my background is as an apartment broker. So I would say I'm an apartment broker. But then I realized, okay, but I was an apartment broker in a specific sub-market in Los Angeles. So I knew every rent, I knew every street, I knew the tenant profile. And so I think a lot of this goes the same way with when you're a medical broker, you're not advising every single medical industry on the sun. You maybe could, but what's been the advantages and challenges with getting more specific? For example, the ophthalmology or veterinary practice. Sure. So you know, I'd love to say that there was a lot of science or strategy behind it. What ended up happening in the ophthalmology world is we transacted a couple of ophthalmic buildings. For those who don't know, ophthalmologists focus on your eyeballs. And so we found a good niche there just through transactions and creating a couple of great relationships. And it kind of snowballed from there. So there happened to be a lot of ophthalmologists who bought or built their buildings. They have a pretty high concentration of you know the surgical centers that are out there, the independently operated surgical centers. And so it just sort of happened by chance. But I'll tell you that we're very active in prospecting in all of the segments I mentioned to you and others, right? And then I guess to your question about specialization and you know as an apartment broker you knew the certain rents in your submarket that sort of thing what we find is that rents in medical assets really shouldn't be that different based on geography now there're certainly outliers right so if you're in new york city you're in los angeles obviously the rents are going to be different but when most of the markets that we're focused on are kind of secondary and tertiary markets usually places that are a little bit harder to get to, a little bit less saturated. And so from that standpoint, we find that you know a surgery center in Paducah, Kentucky probably has a similar rent to a surgery center in Beaumont, Texas, or you know somewhere in more rural Pennsylvania, right? So we are looking at more regional and specialized comps in terms of establishing what our rents should be. And then in terms of you know the cap rates or valuations, it really just comes down to cost of capital, right? And so maybe we'll hit on that a little bit later, but it's really just what the folks that we sell to are looking to buy and what kind of yield requirements they have. 
That makes sense. So more specifically on the rent. So if I'm in Beaumont, Texas, and I'm and on one corner and there's an ophthalmology center, and then on the other corner, there's a urology center. And on the third corner, maybe there's a dentist. Are those all going to be similar rents? I mean, of course, we're talking similar vintage building and similar size. Or is it, no, the ophthalmology, they're the best. They're always two times more than any other rent. <laughs> so it totally depends. And remember, we're focused on sale leasebacks. So our clients really control their destiny in terms of what the rent should be. So it really comes down to what are the objectives of the partnership? You know, Does this rent make sense for them? We can kind of justify any rent within fair market value, as you know, right? So it really starts with a conversation with our client. Hey, what are your objectives? Do you care about long-term sustainability? In which case we might set their rent at the lower end of fair market value. Or do you care about getting max proceeds, right? In which case there's going to be a heavier rent burden for the practice. But you know, most of the practices we work with, they're highly profitable. So rent is just a minute portion of their operating statement. That makes sense. So you're sitting down with a medical group. What are some of the challenges, concerns that they have when it comes to, hey, I can help you monetize the real estate? What's the objections, challenges, concerns? And then what are some of the ways that you're helping them? A lot of questions there. We'll, we can go one by one. Go ahead. Yeah, for sure. So I won't even say that we approach physician groups about selling their real estate. By the way, we're real estate brokers. We don't refer to ourselves as brokers. We are advisors. We're not ever out to push a sale. We always want to get a better understanding of our client and their objectives, right? So we know a lot of the common pain points that occur in physician practices. So that might be succession planning, right? We have some physicians that are going to retire. We might have a new line of you know associate physicians who is ready to become partners, there might be some potential sale of the practice to private equity, so a pending kind of opco transaction. And so all of those are potential drivers for our deals. And so when we go in, we kind of look at some indicators that we're aware of, like you know the ages of the physicians or the specialty they're in, and we figure out if there might be a pain point associated with one of those variables I just mentioned or any number of others, right? And so then we'll approach them kind of, hey, have you thought about this, right? Or what's your solution to this pending challenge? And a lot of them may not even be aware of the challenge. And so we educate them on that. And they certainly don't know the solutions or not always. And so if we can position a sale leaseback as a solution for them, which oftentimes it is, but I'll honestly tell you that 50% of the people we talk to, we will tell them a sale is not right for you right now. And then the other 50%, it makes all the sense, right? So that's really the approach that we take is kind of a fact-finding mission to understand the objectives of our clients, never to push them into a deal. Okay. So don't you hit on the sale lease back. There's obviously some advantages to that. And you know, as a COO with Ascension, I'm looking broadly at all the business owners that we're helping. And I understand, you know, many of the advantages. We're going to optimize the balance sheet. We're going to free up some capital. We're going to expand operations. I'm sure a lot of those same rules apply to the medical group. But is there anything specifically about a sale leaseback as it relates to the medical profession where maybe it's unique or different or where you like to hang your hat on as to why it's important to work with someone like yourself, a specialist in this field? Sure. I think there are two. Okay. So the first one is that 
Right now, the new generation of physicians who are coming into the marketplace to deliver care to patients have a little bit of a different mentality. And I'm a millennial, but I will say that oftentimes millennials get a bad rep, right? And so I would say that there is a millennial mindset that also flows into the physician world, right? And I can say it because I'm a millennial. And so that is, hey, we seek higher pay. We want that right away. We want to work, you know, nice hours, right? Like we're only going to see patients nine to five. We're definitely not going to be on call on the weekend or any, you know, off hours. And so that's challenging when you have the older generation of physicians who started the business, they were grinding, it's blood, sweat, and tears. You know, they started literally in nothing or like in a trailer somewhere seeing patients and eventually grew their business. So you have these differing mindsets and the senior physicians, the traditional method of them getting their money out of their practice and their real estate was to sell it to the incoming providers. Okay. Well, you have the incoming providers who don't necessarily feel like they ought to buy in. That's not for everybody. Certainly people understand that there's value to what they're buying, but then you have this new generation who also might have a lot more medical school debt or other debt than their predecessors. So they have med school debt. They just started a new job. They probably moved to a new city. So they have to buy a new home. It's not going to be, you know, an underwhelming home. It'll probably be pretty nice. And so now you have to convince them that they're going to buy into the practice and or the real estate. And so that's just more debt that they have to take on. So that's a challenge, right? The extension of that challenge is, well, what should the value of the real estate be? And we'll kind of focus on real estate, although obviously that applies to the practice or operation as well. So on the real estate side, the traditional method of valuation for these internal buyouts is, hey, Tom, I'm the senior physician. I'm going to sell you my interest for appraised value. Okay. Let's just say that's like 3 million bucks, right? Now, remember the appraisal that I'm getting, or I should be getting is an owner occupied appraisal, right? It's not a income capitalization approach appraisal. We're talking about buying LP or limited partner interests in this partnership. We're not talking about a fee simple sale, right? So let's say that I show you the appraisal, it's $3 million, but then I have an advisor over here who's telling me, hey, Colin, I can sell your real estate in a sale leaseback transaction. And the value based on the income cap approach is $9 million. So why in the world would I sell my interest in the building that I built myself to, you know, Dr. Tom, and I'm going to sell it to you for $3 million when this advisor over here is telling me he can sell for nine. So we kind of have, you know, this difference in opinion in terms of valuation, which also is, I would say, unique to our space. And by the way, challenging because for doctors, and I remember hearing you talk about this in another podcast, yeah. real estate is probably like the fourth or fifth concern. Totally. It's like the yeah. business the yeah. family, other investments, and then maybe get to the real Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it. we have this like differing mindset, right? Between the senior and junior. And that's not to say there aren't entrepreneurial, you know, millennial physicians or anything like that. I'm making generalizations, but it's a common theme that we run into. And then the other piece of that, which actually relates to the business, but then kind of flows back to the real estate is there's a huge amount of consolidation happening in healthcare, right? Probably you guys are seeing that in like QSRs and other areas, right? Certainly industrial, that sort of thing. So 
you know, what happens is our clients bought or built their building as a way to control the destiny of their practice, right? They own their practice. They own their real estate. Practice pays rent to the real estate. And so now they're going to sell the practice entity and it totally changes the risk profile of the real estate investment. They were owner occupiers. They know where the rent comes from. They can control their lease however they want to. But now they bring in a new third-party tenant who they work for because they essentially sold their practice. Now they become an employee and it's just a different risk investment. And so that's not to say it's right or wrong, but the reality is that if you're selling your practice, we educate our clients to understand that they're going to negotiate a new lease. The lease isn't going to get longer. The lease is what it is. And so if you ever want to monetize that asset, probably the best time is as soon as that lease is signed. So I would say those two dynamics, right? Kind of the incoming class of physicians, along with consolidation in healthcare through private equity involvement are really what is unique to our space and drives a lot of transactions. It's interesting because, you know, for example, uh, I call a manufacturer of widgets and it's a 500,000 square foot building in the Midwest. It's maybe family founder owned. Maybe they've got some private equity involvement, but structuring that sale lease back is I'm talking to the founder and I may be talking to the private equity firm. There's not too many other decision makers. There's not all these other, maybe there's a two brothers or two family members that own, but that's it. With these physician groups, it's very convoluted because it's 5, 10, 15, 20, and maybe it's the original 10 or five own the real estate. Right. And then maybe they, yeah, they still own the real estate, but now there's 50 physicians and it's only two or three of the original. Correct. There's all these competing concerns. The newer group or 50, they're like, why would we pay this rent? We don't want to do this. Correct. Yeah. It's juggling a lot of personalities. And then it's sometimes educating a, a large number of people. And I'm sure they have a board and decision makers. I very much doubt it's just one or two people. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you said. There are always divergent interests. And so that's where it really starts to get messy. And I would say a sale leaseback tends to make sense in those messy situations, right? I'll tell you a story about a deal that we worked on. So it was in Georgia, wasn't a huge deal, you know, probably like a 15,000 square foot building, but it was a surgery center, a multi-specialty surgery center that was founded like 20 something years ago. Okay. And so it was founded by 24 varying specialties of surgeons and they were all equal partners in the opco or the operation and the real estate. Fast forward to where we are today. And we have four guys still doing cases in the surgery center, meaning they're the only owners in the surgery center operation. But then we have 24 guys who are on the landlord side. So eventually, because they never were required to be bought out or sell or anything, and they loved it because it's passive income. So we have this situation where we have four guys paying 24 guys rent. And it creates a lot of tension. And so that's an exaggerated story. I wouldn't say most situations are like that, but there's more than you would think. And so it often makes sense to kind of wipe the slate clean, sell the real estate. Now we're all equal, or at least we have only one partnership to focus on. That kind of stuff comes up all the time. Yeah, no, but even the situation, I, I know you hinted on in another podcast, I was listening to you, and it could be, this could be a single practitioner. This could be a dentist where- yep. They've had a 30 or 40 year practice. They owned the building. Maybe it's a small building. Maybe it's something 
2,500, 5,000 square feet, very small. Right. And they're like, why would I ever sell, Colin? This is my retirement. Sure. Let's, wait a minute. You're going to retire. And actually, you're probably going to close the business because it might be an archaic business or something like that. Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe, you know, maybe still you should sell it, but you're going to close the business. And then now what is the real estate? The real estate doesn't have a lot of value. So it's so it's also getting ahead of the curve in those situations as well, right? And educating them. And that's got to be well in advance of when they retire. Yeah. Well, as you know, I mean, you're in a sale lease back focused business as well, and you obviously need lease term in order to get there. Right. So yeah, it's about thinking ahead. And so I was just pinged for some insight for somebody's blog recently. And, you know, the biggest insight that I would try to share with a lot of our clients is when you're going into an investment like this, meaning your practice real estate or your clinical real estate or your surgery center real estate, you really have to have your exit strategy in mind the day you buy it or build it, right? And so knowing the elements to get you to a successful sale and a successful exit strategy are critical. And so that's why I mentioned to you, look, 50% of the folks we talk to, I would tell them it's not right for you to sell today, but I'm glad you know us. I'm glad you're listening to us because that way when you're ready and when the timing's right, you know who to call, right? So our strategy in our practice overall is very education oriented. Again, we're not here to push a sale. We have plenty of business, but we want to make sure we transact the right folks and for the right reasons. Yeah, that makes sense. I uh, am an investor in some apartment buildings. And yeah, every time we're going into a deal, we're going, okay, what's the value we're going to add? And what's the exit? Yeah. How do we get our money out of here? How do we get our money out, right? Yeah. How much money am I going to make? Really? Yeah. But then, yeah, you know, the typical medical group, they're thinking they may never sell it. And so they're never yeah. thinking about that, right? Or they weren't familiar with the concept of being able to sell your real estate and continue to occupy it, right? And I would say, you know, I might be jumping ahead a little bit. I'm not sure all the questions that you have ahead, but I would say one of the biggest objections we get is nobody wants to lose control, right? In fact, the reason you own your house is so you control it. So your landlord can't kick you out. Same kind of thing with a lot of our clients. They bought or built their building so they can control their destiny, right? So they know who they're paying rent to. They know they're always safe there. And you have to imagine they're investing a significant sum of money in the specialized improvements for their building, right? It's not just like an office building. And so they want to make sure that that's protected. So the way we protect that, which institutional or other investors tend to like as well, is with a long-term lease. And so most of our leases in a sale leaseback are set up with you know anywhere from 10, 12, 15-year fresh lease with multiple renewal options, which generally gives most of our clients plenty of comfort. Very good. So aside from some of the benefits of getting ahead of the curve that you spoke about, especially when there's multiple partners, yep. tell me some of like the just the general business advantages of doing a sale leaseback. I run a medical group. Why would I want to do this? How is this going to help the business? Yeah. Aren't you just a broker trying to make money? Aren't you? Don't you just want a commission? Like, how are you going to help me? Help me and yeah. I'll help you, Colin. Yeah. So we definitely want to help all of our clients and no one deal is going to change my life or any of, you know, anyone in our company's lives. So we're out, you know, for the greater good, but I would say the way it helps is it kind of avoids those tense situations that we talked about when there's divergent interests. And then it also provides additional liquidity. I don't think most of our clients are reinvesting the money in the business. If I'm being honest with you, I would say that usually they're selling so that they have a liquidity event and they were able to capture 
that additional value that they created in a sale leaseback. And then really the the question I would ask them is, well, if you don't want to do this, how are you going to get your money out of the building, right? And for most of them, there's not a great answer. On the topic of you know the new generation of physicians coming in, the real estate has historically been looked at as kind of a recruiting tool where I can say, hey, you know, Dr. Tom, we want you to come join our practice and you have the opportunity to buy into the real estate, which kind of creates some hooks and makes you a little more sticky. And I would imagine for that newer generation also down the road, hey, we're going to be able to execute maybe a sale lease back here yep. and we're going to grow operations. So you're not only going to be part of one or two facilities, we may have five or six or seven, right? And then they're excited about that, right? Totally. But eventually you have to get your money out and you do that through a sale. So I would say those are the common advantages is kind of to avoid a bad situation or also to just, you know, capitalize on the right market factors. And then I'm going to give you a plug. You've got a great website on the insights tab. You discuss some common objections or common advantages to sale leaseback. And you've got some short videos that go through those one by one. And I thought you did a great job there. So give your website because I think it's very informative. Absolutely. Yeah. If you guys are interested in learning more about healthcare real estate and, you know, potential sale leasebacks for physician groups or other healthcare providers, our website is ereadv.com. And so we have a variety of case studies, various buildings we've sold. And then, as I mentioned, we lead a lot with education. So a lot of videos and we try to do them in, you know, a bite-sized format so that it's not boring to watch. Yeah, it's very similar to what I've seen Chelsea do as well. So awesome. uh, two successful people, like-minded, and it's just a great job. A couple other final questions. You've touched on it a few times, private equity. How have you seen the growth of private equity in you know, the medical industry evolve or change? And then I know you had mentioned on another podcast I was listening, I keep plugging all these other podcasts. You're, you've, okay. you're a podcast expert. <laughs> You said that private equity had been in the veterinary space for a little bit longer than the human medical space. I'm curious, what are the differences? What is the growth that you're seeing with private equity? And hand it back to you. Okay. Yeah. So we transacted last year, six veterinary hospitals. So we got to learn a lot more about that segment through that transaction. I'll tell you what I have seen in terms of the consolidation of vet care. And I think it's kind of a forecast of where human healthcare is headed. So veterinary care is by virtue of it not being related to humans, a little bit less regulated. And I don't mean that it's inferior in any way. I I don't mean that. I just mean that because you're not dealing with humans, there's less regulation related to it, right? You're just, you're operating on your dog. So private equity has been involved a lot longer in the veterinary care space. And so there've been a lot more turns, meaning hey, practices have been bought, and then ultimately a group of practices is sold to bigger private equity and then sold again, kind of to like, you know, the final perhaps strategic buyer, right? And so the biggest buyer or biggest kind of end buyer, I should say, in veterinary care, I would say is Mars. So like the candy company, they happen to have a huge presence in the vet care space. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Are they involved in the VCA, right? They're part of VCA. Yeah. They're part of Blue Pearl. Yeah. It's interesting. So... I would say that that's probably where PE in human healthcare is going, but we're 10 or 15 years behind veterinary care. And so obviously a lot of fancy attorneys have figured out how to kind of work through the healthcare regulation with private equity as relates to, you know, human healthcare, but the ultimate, you know, logical end buyer for that is an insurance company, right? It makes a lot of sense for an insurance company to 
own a platform of care providers so that they can control the vertical and total cost of delivery of care, right? And so we've even seen that already. There have been some major investments, I think, in uh, surgical care affiliates by you know some really large money, really large kind of institutional money and healthcare providers. And so you're already starting to see that, but there's tons of other consolidation that's happening just on a smaller level that ultimately will be sold up to the larger platform. It's interesting because, yeah, you go back to when these veterinary services or clinics started, it's very similar than, you know, to the ophthalmology clinic or the dermatology clinic, whatever it may be. It's, it's a, a small business. Yeah, it's yeah. a small business. It's just interesting how that scaled so much quicker and more rapidly. And that makes sense. I mean, the regulation with respect to human healthcare, it, yeah. Right. And and by the way, I don't think it's good or bad. I think there are pros and cons to independent ownership. And I think there are pros and cons to corporate ownership, right? As long as the mission and objective of the organization remains to provide care to patients, that is what's important, right? And the reason that it's more regulated in healthcare is because when you start creating financial incentives for the delivery of care, it's focusing on the wrong things, right? And so that's kind of the fear of private equity coming into the healthcare segment is, well, they're focused on profits. That's not true for all of them, but that's a common theme that a lot of people will echo, which is why it's so important to have the right private equity, right? Which is another advantage of working with the right brokerage firm, right? Totally, yeah. Who is like, we're going to not only find that capital partner, but it's going to be the right capital partner that's going to have interests aligned with you, that's going to meet the goals that you want to meet in, in expanding or just being the right person to do business with on a day-to-day basis. Correct. That's a great thing that you highlighted, Tom, because, I mean, look, our competitors, I would say, lead with, we're going to get you the highest price, right? I mean, you've been in brokerage a long time. That's such a common opener to use to get a client. It's kind of to buy listings and get people interested in price. We do the complete opposite of that. We focus on, hey, what are your objectives? Let's help you get there. Obviously, everybody would like to have the best price, but what do you have to agree to get to that? Do you really want to sell to XYZ company? Are they a great landlord? Are they in it for the long term? Are they flippers, right? And so we try to focus on placing our clients with the best landlord based on everything we know about them. Yeah, or are we going to pump your rent so high to get you this big price that it's not sustainable for your business? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, and I think that's something that our two companies do share a common theme in. And, and look, a lot of this is because of the knowledge and experience in private equity, but also just realizing that, hey, look, we, we want your business to be successful. Yeah, we want to get you the highest price, but we want your business to be successful. So we understand how to write the finances of your business. We're going to make sure that it's got rent coverage that we're going to be able to afford. And we're also going to make sure that you have the right capital partner, i.e. the person coming in to buy the property or maybe even buy your business. If they say, hey, I want to buy my business, that's going to allow you to accomplish your goals, whatever that may be. I want to be on a 20-year growth or I want to wind down in 10 or five years. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And again, all these things are important considerations in a transaction, right? It's not just, hey, who can sell for a five cap? Yeah, absolutely. So let's shift to, as we're kind of getting close to wrapping up, let's shift to today's current economic climate and what we're facing with rising interest rates, this recession that we say is here or is coming. I guess some advantages is healthcare, kind of like my old job, housing, it's always in need. 
but there's still headwinds that you're running into with respect to your clients, I guess, number one on just making sure their businesses are operating okay, but number two on how much can we get for their real estate because interest rates are up. So what are some of the challenges that you're dealing with uh, as it relates to your clients? Well, I'd love to hear what your crystal ball says, but I'll share what our challenges are and sort of, they're only sort of challenges. Here's the reality is that like housing, which is the you know segment that you used to focus in, healthcare is something that everybody needs. You can't buy it on the internet. Obviously, there's been, you know, through COVID, I think there was really a push for telemedicine. And that's fine for like primary care visits, that sort of thing. But you can't do surgery over Zoom, right? So until the day you can do that, I would say it's going to be critical that there are healthcare real estate you know, facilities where surgeons can practice and take care of patients. So I don't think there are headwinds there. I think there's been even just continued growth in demand for healthcare as we went through COVID because, you know, there was a moratorium on kicking folks out of their apartment buildings, right? Retail, online sales just accelerated. So retail was having an even harder time. And so healthcare is great for all those reasons. And we've seen a lot of additional capital come into it because of that. Now let's talk about pricing. Obviously, pricing is down, right? And so most of the folks that we sell to, I like to think of us as a conduit between the physician world and the institutional world. And so we kind of have a good leg up on that because a lot of folks on our team came from the institutional buy side. So when we're a conduit there and we're focused on these institutional investors, they are, as you know, they're they're financiers, right? And so they're buying based on, you know, what's the cost of my debt? What returns do I have to pay to our investors? And so the price of the property is a direct kind of product of all that. So with higher interest rates, pricing's gone down. But the reality is that doesn't necessarily change any of the pain points that our clients have, right? And if the pain points are succession planning, we're selling to private equity, you know, we have divergent interests in our partnership, well, you got to solve the problem, whether it's a five cap or a six cap or a nine cap, right? And it just so happens that if a lot of our clients have been approached by private equity or they're considering private equity or they have sold to private equity, they're familiar with the valuation multiples in that space, usually a multiple of EBITDA or earnings. And so a lot of times what we do is we talk in terms of you know multiple of rent. And so that I would say that's a little bit less traditional method of explaining real estate values. But if you're comparing selling your practice for eight times EBITDA and I can sell your real estate for 14 times, well, that makes sense in your brain. And we're not even talking about cap rates, right? So that is still a premium multiple. And so again, we've had a lot of success, you know, kind of running that narrative and also just looking out for the objectives of our clients. Yeah, that that multiple is it makes all the difference in the world. So yeah, absolutely. and it's good to hear as it relates to the healthcare industry. I mean, yeah, a lot of the concerns that we're hearing over at Ascension because we're dealing with a lot of different business owners. Sure, is sure you're certainly hearing some of it. Costs are up, you know, debt is up, but it's still a critical aspect of life is healthcare. And you're right, you can't do it over Zoom. So it's good to hear that that industry is still holding on very well. And yeah, it makes sense. And right? by the way. I won't say that there aren't challenges in the business side, right? Obviously, costs are up, hard to find the right staff. And, you know, I'll tell you an objection that we get a lot is, especially with all the inflation that's happening, is that the whole world of investors want bigger rental increases. And I say, like, that's a cool idea. Yeah, everybody wants bigger rental increases, but we're not getting increased reimbursements 
by you know Medicare or other payers. And when I say we, I mean you know our clients. So their costs are going up, but their income is not necessarily. The only way that they can raise their income is by doing higher volume, right? And so to do higher volume, that's also driving towards all this aggregation or consolidation because, hey, it's harder to operate our margin slimmer. So we got to see more patients. So let's join up with another practice or let's join up with private equity. Yeah, that makes sense. And then by the way, two, three years ago, a lot of these surgery centers were probably not doing very well because a lot of these surgeries were considered elective. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, times have changed. Now everything's really good, but then now you've got rising interest rates. So there's always going to be some challenge, right? Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So look, final question, who in the world of corporate real estate, would you like to take to lunch? And I guess we'll say corporate health-related real estate. Sure. Who is a leader or a thought leader in your industry that you would love to pick their brain, take them to lunch, and it would move you to even greater heights? So I'll, you know, it's interesting. I just met her at like a client event a couple of weeks ago. And so we didn't have lunch, but we just chatted for, you know, a few minutes, but there's a gal named Mindy Berman. And so she is actually on the brokerage and advisory side. And so she's really, you know, created a massive following for herself and she's very trusted in the world of healthcare real estate. And so uh, love to take her to lunch one day and I'm sure we'll make it happen. It's kind of on my list for 2023. Very cool. I'll look her up as well. All right. Very good, Colin. Thanks so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure getting to meet you and as well. look forward to actually meeting you personally sometime. I'm out in California quite a bit. I grew up in California, so awesome. I'm never too far away in Scottsdale. So Perfect. I'm looking forward to it, Tom. Thanks again for having me and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thank you. Right. Mission Critical, a sale leaseback podcast by Ascension. To find out more about Ascension and how we can help you achieve a higher standard of real estate advisory, visit www.higherascension.com. And then make sure to search for Mission Critical in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. We talk to Sally Spice.